Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm speaking with Christian Picciolini. When Christian was 14, he joined America's first neo-Nazi skinhead group. He quickly rose up through the ranks and by 18, he was second in command and helping to recruit and organize cells across the country. He helped to soften the neo-Nazis' external image and political language they used so as to attract individuals who would otherwise not have been willing to join the movement. However, at 22, he left the group and has since dedicated the last 20 plus years of his life to help atone for his grisly past and try and make something of his time on this planet by contributing to the greater good. In 2009, he co-founded Life After Hate, a non-profit that helps people disengage from hate and violent extremism. He's the author of uh he's the author of my violent memoir no sorry my uh romantic romantic memoirs, memoirs of an american skinhead you got it uh he's an emmy award-winning television producer and a prolific public speaker with a burning mission to eradicate the world of racism christian thanks so much for being here duncan it's my pleasure should i call you dragon i we yeah we <laughs> i'm gonna regret that now aren't i just before we click <laughs> record you say what do you what 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 do I like to be called? And I said, Duncan, CJ, Dragon. I didn't actually think you were going to call me Dragon on air. But yeah, Dragon, from now on, I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> we'll go with Duncan. We'll go with, with the name that your parents gave you. <laughs> now, I'm glad we, we've managed to get around to this. This was our second or third attempt. Like, we, we had snowstorms. We had daylight savings. Like, that, 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 that undid both of us. Like, we were, we were both an hour off. That tricky can we just savings. can we just put an end to this to this ridiculous daylight savings time that is just throwing us off every year? <laughs> well, I'm really glad we yeah we we managed to do it and um, yeah like I said I mean it's fascinating topic and I, I think it's really sort of unique and illuminating to better talk to somebody who can really actually understand it both sides and um, and maybe just going way back almost to the beginning like what is perhaps most surprising is that you didn't come from, say, a broken home. Your parents weren't drug addicts. They weren't alcoholics. None of the, I guess, whatever, quote-unquote, obvious reasons why we might sure. assume someone might join a gang. That, that, that wasn't the case, was it? No, I actually came from a very loving home with uh, two parents who worked very, very hard. Uh, in fact, they were Italian immigrants who moved to the United States in the mid-1960s. So they were often the victims of prejudice. It wasn't uh, something that I was raised with. Um, unfortunately, though, because my parents were immigrants, they had to work extra hard to support their family. So they were often gone seven days a week, sometimes 14 hours a day. And because of that, I felt slightly abandoned by them. And I went and searched for a family on my own. You know, at 14 years old, I, I was experiencing what all teenagers do. In fact, what all people do. And I had these fundamental needs of, of identity and community and uh, trying to find an outlet for my sense of purpose. Uh, all the while, I felt marginalized and I was bullied and, and picked on. Uh, and I didn't have a lot of friends because I was pretty shy and introverted. So uh, I went searching for that family that I didn't have at home or that I didn't feel like I had uh, in uh, a space that was brand new. Uh, in fact, I was standing in an alley at 14 years old and I was smoking a joint. And a man uh, came up to me with a shaved head and with boots. Uh, and what I didn't know at the time was that he was America's first neo-Nazi skinhead. And when he pulled a joint from my mouth and he looked me in the eyes, he said, don't you know that that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile? Uh, at 14 years old, Duncan, I don't think I knew what a communist was or if I'd met a Jewish person and I hardly knew how, you know, what the word docile meant, to be quite honest. 
but he was this adult man, 26 years old, who really struck me as being very charismatic and powerful at a time when I felt the most powerless. Uh, so I tried to emulate him because he seemed to solve all my problems by promising me paradise. Uh, at a time when I felt the most powerless, I, all I wanted was to just feel respected and, and wanted to belong. Yeah. I, there was a, I think you said, which was a really powerful statement, you hated other people because you hated yourself. That's true. Yeah. I really hated the situation I was in. I was tired of, of being a nobody and being bullied and, and not being heard. So I, I really began to hate my own situation. And then in order to to remove that pain from me, I, I began to project it onto other people and blame them for my problems. And it's in the movement, it's a very us against them mentality. And there's always uh, an object of hate. There's always somebody to blame for your problems rather than reflecting inwards and, and maybe understanding that you're the cause of your problems, or at least you have the ability to fix them. Spending time in that environment, I mean, did, were there lots of sort of similar motivations to you or what were some of the most i guess common motivations or reasons for other people joining these movements uh you know most people that joined we targeted specifically because they were marginalized because they were disgruntled uh, because they had a bad family life because they had a grievance that they couldn't find an answer to uh and we provided those answers to them so we looked for the people who didn't fit in because we knew that we could give them a place to fit in and above all really the 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 marketing tools that were used were not based so much on ideology as they were on those other two uh, really important fundamental needs of, of identity development and community. Uh, who are my people and who am I? And we would answer those questions and then focus their purpose into our own agenda. So we really looked for people we could manipulate uh, fairly easily. I think it's, it's very easy to, um, to judge, especially when we see or hear things which – we just know it's simply like not right. But like when we judge something, then that's almost like a full stop. You know, we, we close the door to actually understanding it. And I think without understanding something, then we can, we can never change it. So I think this, it's I true. think having this, these conversations and having these really just open, frank discussions about what are these causes, I think that's almost like a first step to actually understanding in the future, like how we can yeah. stop that from happening again and again. Yeah, let, I mean, let's face it and let's be honest. There are a lot of people in this world who are suffering, right? Whether it's unemployment or poverty uh, or addiction or trauma or a government that is hostile. Uh, and those people, like everybody else in the world, are looking to survive. They're looking to be self-sufficient, support their families and provide safety to their families. And when that opportunity doesn't exist for people to be resilient and self-sufficient, uh, unfortunately, sometimes they turn to very extreme measures, which could be, uh, you know, violent extremism. It could be terrorism. Uh, and that's the problem we need to fix. The underlying issue is opportunity. How do we bring opportunity, equal opportunity to people uh, in the areas that are the most underserved uh, so that they have access to the same type of resilience and success uh, that people of privilege share? Uh, because it really is a struggle. It really is a class struggle to try and survive. And I'm not talking about just the U.S. or, or North America. I'm talking about all over the world. Happy people, whole people don't plant bombs or cut off people's heads just doesn't happen. People who have a void in their life, something that's missing, uh, 
are searching for answers sometimes in the most desperate ways, uh, or at least searching for an outlet for their frustration. And that's what we're trying to help resolve. We're trying to identify people who are in these movements. Uh, most times they come to us uh, and we look for the potholes that exist in their lives that force them down this alternate path, that force them to change their trajectory. And then we listen uh, and uh, we try to fill those potholes. And it could be job training, it could be educational assistance, it could be mental health therapy or tattoo removal uh, or just immersion into uh, communities where their objects of hate live. Uh, because oftentimes uh, haters have never met the people that they claim to hate. They've never had a meaningful interaction with those people. So building that bridge and, and, and trying to find a way for them to humanize these objects of hate is also very important. And what's really amazing is once all those holes, those potholes are filled in and the person feels more resilient, more self-sufficient, uh, it's it's pretty magical how quickly the ideology and the hate falls away because there's nobody to blame anymore. Uh, now they're more self-sufficient and there's no us against them mentality because now they really are, uh, equipped with success. Yeah. I think you said like, I think it was also, I mean, it completely like continued on that point. You were just saying like the only way to show them that there's nothing to hate is to show them that there is something to love. True. It is very true. I love that. And we've, We've lost that sometimes, I think. I think we're so focused on our struggles that uh, we've become very singularly focused on the success or uh, in wallowing in the defeat of it. And I think that, you know, we really we need to to drive out hate with more love, with more acceptance, with more empathy and tolerance, uh, because we really are one race. We're a human race that is uh, not causing each other's problems. Let me just say that. Uh, you know, jobs are, are not available, not because of other people, but sometimes because of corporations and technology and innovation and progress. Uh, yet we blame each other for those problems. We blame people coming in from other countries as taking away our jobs, when in reality, that's not really what's happening. Jobs are leaving because of, of technological progress and, and innovation. And I think that we're blaming the wrong people rather than embracing each other as, as common people going through the same struggle, we polarize and we tend to blame each other when we're really not the source of those problems. Mm. Taking things back a bit, like, so you joined, you were working your way up the ranks and to continue growing, the movement began to rebrand itself. So there was, yeah. you know, don't shave your head, don't get tattoos, don't wave the swastika flag. Instead, wear a suit and tie, go to college, blend in and mainstream the ideology. And, and that's what we're seeing right now, isn't it? This normalization of racism. 30 years ago, we came up with the concept of suits, not boots, uh, which meant basically uh, we weren't, you know, we recognized we were turning away very racist people who were turned off by how edgy uh, or how neo-Nazi we were. Uh, in America, there's a, you know, an aversion to Nazis because of our, our stance in the war. But that doesn't mean that those people aren't racist. So when we recognized that we were turning away racist people that we could normally recruit, we started to understand that if we toned down our rhetoric, made it a little bit more palatable for people to swallow, focused on their grievances rather than the ideology, uh, 
stop shaving our heads, stop waving swastika flags, and instead grew our hair and, and started going to university, started getting jobs in law enforcement and even running for office in some cases, we knew that we could attract more people if we just took the message, made it a little bit more marketing savvy and appealed to more people. And in fact, 30 years later, here we are. Uh, and all across the world, we're seeing a wave of far right uh extremism, uh, politicians belonging to the far right, uh, becoming elected to parliaments and to government. And, uh, that's a serious issue because now, uh, what was in the shadows really is kind of living, um, uh, on a very normalized, very mainstream playing field. And we're giving them a lot of, uh, platform to really discuss their issues. Okay. So the, the combination of your son being born and also coming into contact with a variety of different people at the record shop that you ran, mm. there was a shift. Start, something started changing, didn't it? Can you describe yeah. or paint a picture for that time? Sure. Well, when I was 19, I was uh, married uh, and we had our first child. And, and uh, if, you know, for any parents listening out there, maybe they'll understand. But holding my child for the first time was simply magical. It, it, it made a shift in me that I never expected or never uh, you know, saw coming. Um, but it helped me reconnect with the innocence that I lost at 14 years old when I was recruited. Uh, but it also helped shift my priorities because now it was not just about me and this movement. It was about my family. So that really started the process for me. It opened up my mind enough to be, uh, to be accepting of more tolerance. Although I was still a little skittish because after my son was born, I opened a record store to sell music. And my intent was to sell white power music because, uh, it was my way of staying off the street, supporting my family, uh, while still being in the movement, uh, because I wasn't courageous enough to break away at that point, even though I'd started to lose the ideology. But what happened in the store was because I wanted to be a good entrepreneur, I began to sell other music besides the white power music, like hip hop and punk rock and heavy metal. And what I didn't expect uh, was that the customers that came in to buy that music, who were African-American, who were uh, Latino, who were gay, who were Muslim, uh, I would have conversations with them as they came in the shop. And the more and more they came in, even though they knew who I was, they really showed me compassion and empathy when I least deserved it. And they were the people I least deserved it from. Uh, so that really was, had a profound effect on me because I began to realize that we had more similarities than differences. When the African American teenager came in and was sad because his mother had passed from cancer, I knew that that was the same sadness that I felt when my grandmother was diagnosed with cancer or when the gay couple held their son, it was obvious that they loved their son, uh, in the same ways that I loved my own son. So I just couldn't reconcile the differences and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't justify the hate anymore. So I decided to finally pull the music, the white power music from the shelves. And of course, because it was 75% of my revenue, I had to close my store, but I really am grateful for those experiences because it was the first time in my life where I actually had the opportunity to engage with people who I'd kept outside of my social circle in a very meaningful way. And, and I credit them with the humanity that I regained after having lost it for eight years. So even after you had abandoned the ideology, it was it was incred incredibly difficult to give up that community. Though you talked about that idea of oh, yeah. your family, your community, who yeah, they, 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 they were your family. Um, yeah. How how was that transition? It was very difficult because in joining the movement, I had to abandon everything else that was important to me: my real family, my real friends. 
um, and, and any, you know, semblance of normal life that I had to, to essentially, uh, embrace this movement. Is that a conscious so, decision from them? So in terms of, they want you to be, they want you to leave everything else behind. So you are more isolated. So you need them more. Is that, is that, uh, absolutely. A, a, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is they draw you in further and further away from, from what was important in your life so that all you have left is them so that it's very difficult to leave. So as somebody who was 14 and who got into this and developed a very strong identity, uh, within this movement and built a very strong family around myself, uh, the f even though I had lost the ideology, the idea of giving up that very important identity and community was very difficult. Uh, so I see so many people stay into these movements, uh, not because of the ideology, but because they're scared of starting over. They're scared of of shedding this uh, this life and still being branded with it after they leave because, that, in fact, that's what happens. And, and plus, it could be dangerous as well. Uh, for me, I actually went through a process of five years after I left the movement where I was very depressed. Uh, and even though I had treated other people with respect, I still uh, was miserable. And that was because I, I had tried to outrun my past. Uh, for those five years, I, I, you know, I tried to move, I covered my tattoos with long sleeves, I certainly dressed differently and tried to make new friends. And I never really had the courage to tell people about my past, I tried to just run from it. Uh, until I realized one day that I couldn't run, run from it anymore, that the reason I was miserable inside is because I still had not forgiven myself or sought forgiveness from other people. Once you decided, okay, I'm gonna just face it head on, what I don't know if I've got an actual question in mind, but like, is that, was that just like an ongoing thing? Like how, how did you, how did you start that? I mean, what was, what were the first kind of things you decided to do to like, Hey, to own up and face it? You know, I left the movement in 95 uh, and I spent those five years very depressed trying to outrun my past. And then in uh, late 99, um, a friend of mine came to me and she said, you know, if you don't change your life, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to lose you because I was contemplating suicide. I was getting into drugs and alcohol because I was trying to cover up this pain inside that I really didn't even know that I had. Uh, but she encouraged me to go apply for a job and, uh, it happened to be at this company called IBM, which is, you know, of course a very tiny company. <laughs> uh, <laughs> With millions and millions of customers, and and uh, I had no experience. I'd been kicked out of five high schools, one of them twice. I was a former Nazi. I had tattoos. <laughs> I never went to university. I mean, I didn't even own a computer. It was that bad. And I told her, I said, you know, why would they possibly even contemplate hiring me? And she said, well, just tell them you're really good with people. You have an experience of attracting people. And I said, yeah, I'm not sure I want to lead with that one, but uh, – Anyways, I ended up getting the job, and of course, as fate would have it, uh, because IBM has millions and millions of customers all over the world, uh, they put me back at my old high school for a computer rollout that uh, – the same high school I got kicked out of twice. So you can call <laughs> it fate. Lucky. You can call it karma. You can call it God's will, destiny, whatever you want to call it. Somehow they managed, without knowing my past, to put me at my old high school, and uh, I was terrified. I was absolutely, completely horrified that this first thing that was meaningful in my life, I would now suddenly lose. Uh, and I knew that somebody would recognize me when I walked in. And of course, on my first day in the first five minutes of, you know, of this wonderful job, the man who I had terrorized in high school, the old black security guard who I'd gotten in a fist fight with that got me kicked out of school for the second time, crossed my path. 
Uh, and he didn't recognize me, but uh, I decided after being frozen for a few moments that I had to follow him and I had to say something or do something. And uh, I followed him to the parking lot and I tapped him on the shoulder as he was getting into his car. And when he turned around, uh, this man who normally had a jolly smile uh, turned around and he his face showed fear and he took a step back. And I didn't really know what to do or what to say in that moment except for to extend my hand and say, I'm sorry. And um, we spoke and he shook my hand and he embraced me and we cried maybe just a little bit. It was a long time ago. I don't remember. I think we cried. But he made me promise one thing. He made me promise that I would tell my story because he recognized not just how relevant it was to racism or anything like that, but how relatable I think it could be to other young people who were facing those same fundamental needs of identity and community and, and how to focus their purpose. Uh, and um, he made me promise that. And I didn't really understand that for a while. I didn't know if I had the courage to, to speak out about it. Uh, but one night in 2003, I received a call in the middle of the night that my younger brother uh, had been murdered. And that was an event where he was the color of his skin scared people with a different color uh, skin and they were afraid enough to murder him. So it was the same cycle of violence that I had perpetrated uh, had now taken the life of my brother. You know, somebody was ignorant to the color of my brother's skin and was scared enough to commit violence against it without knowing him. Uh, and that I saw is really no different than anything that I had done in the past with my violence or my recruitment. So I knew at that moment that I really needed to to come clean uh, about who I was and start addressing it. So I started to write my book. Uh, and then in 2009, uh, I co-founded Life After Hate as a way to help people leave hate groups or hateful ideologies because I knew how hard it was to do it on your own. To, to leave a community and an identity without having another community and identity in place to take over once you leave. So Life After Hate has become kind of this uh, benevolent gang of, of former neo-Nazis who help other Nazis disengage and then offer a support network for them after they leave because we really understand the motivations of, of why people join because we were the people that we're trying to serve. But more importantly is we understand the process of disengaging and, the, and how important a support network is for people who are going through those changes. And I'm happy to say we've, we have over a hundred uh, formers uh, from all over the world as part of our network, mostly in the U S and Canada. Uh, and we've also helped set up exit programs in other countries as well. Congratulations. I think it's, and thank you for sharing the story earlier as well. It's, um, yes, really, I was just like, I was transfixed. Um, in your conversation, um, with Glenn Beck, you, you emphasized the absolute necessity of all of us to teach children compassion at a very, very young age. Could you maybe just explain exactly why? Yeah. Well, you know, I think we're all born with empathy, uh, with with compassion. You know, as a small child reaches for his mother or his father looking for comfort, we, we're all born with this need to be accepted, this need to be loved, and this need to be supported. Uh, at some point, I think we lose that because of, you know, life getting in the way and, and responsibilities. Um, but I really do need, I do think we need to focus on teaching empathy and compassion to young people. And that could be as small as, 
you know, taking your one-year-old son or daughter to eat sushi or to eat Indian food or to eat some ethnic food to condition them to not be afraid of something that's different. Because I, you know, I would bet that a child who grows up eating all different types of ethnic foods and being accepting of that will probably be less likely to be intolerant towards people that they don't understand from different races or religions because now they've been wired with this predisposition to be open to things that are different. So that's my theory on food and children. Uh, but I also think that, you know, because teachers spend more time with children than their parents do most of the time, that we really need a, a better effort in schools uh, to move towards more interpersonal relationship skills and understanding of cultures and, and diversity. Otherwise, they'll grow up disconnected and, uh, you know, we, we need to equip people at the very earliest age to, to be able to deal with all the complexities of our world. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? Uh, I think having left the world with more positive impact than negative. I think that when I leave this world, uh, I will look back and say, did I leave a better footprint uh, than the one that I initially left? And that would leave me fulfilled. What is one thing our listeners can start doing today that will have a massive positive effect on their lives? Or just a, or just a positive. I got, I, <laughs> somebody, somebody pulled me out on massive and is like, go on, in one day, I was like, okay, I'll get rid of, I'll get rid of the massive. What is one thing our <laughs> listeners can start doing today that will have a positive effect on their lives? It's simple. Three words. Make good happen. Go do something nice for somebody who you think least deserves it because chances are good that they're the ones who deserve it and need it the most. Last but not least, how can people find out more about you, your work, Life After Hate? Where can we send them? You can go to lifeafterhate.org or exitusa.org or christianpicciolini.com and they'll all point you to the right information. Uh, spread the word. Uh, let people know that we exist. And uh, hopefully we'll see you again. Christian, thank you so much. Dragon, it's been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Duncan, CJ, thank you so much for what you do and for giving people a platform to, to spread good and uh, go out there and make good happen, bud. <laughs>